This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction, the Salem 2022 episode. This is a two-host special edition with me, Rob Wolf, And me, Brendan Wesser. Today, we're thrilled to be talking with Megan Giddings about her new book, The Women Could Fly, which... If we stick to our schedule, we'll be coming out the same week this episode drops in early August 2022. The Women Could Fly is set in our contemporary world with one big difference. There are witches, or at least that's a prevailing belief, and that gives rise to laws and a culture that suppresses witchcraft by turning back the clock on women's rights. One of the questions the reader has to grapple with early on is, Are witches real, or is this an excuse to oppress women, locking them in a version of life that imposes the appearance of a 1950s homemaker domesticity with the threat that you could be burned at the stake for merely being accused of violating the rules? Megan Giddings is the author of the highly acclaimed Lakewood, which made many best-of lists. And The Women Could Fly has generated a lot of positive buzz, making a lot of most anticipated books of 2022 lists. She has degrees from the University of Michigan and Indiana University and is a recipient of the Barbara Deming Memorial Fund grant for feminist fiction. We are delighted to have her on the line with us from Indiana. So, Megan, how are you feeling? (laughs) I'm feeling honestly exhausted. I, I told you all and I don't care if people know but I caught COVID for the first time and wow it's it's really an adventure oh I'm so sorry it you know actually an hour or two ago I was so so tired and I did a COVID test I thought it's caught up with me you know it's finally I have it maybe you planted the seed when you told us you you we postponed the the interview but no I don't think you had anything to do with it because you're in another state but psychologically I I gotta be real with you though that if you tested negative I felt really tired and tested negative twice on home tests 
And I just felt so bad I had to go get a PCR test. And the PCR test was like, no, you have it. So, oh, uh, no. Not now to put like a dark cloud it. over this entire podcast, <laughs> but you might want to get a PCR test if you're still tired tomorrow. Okay, good point. I hope you're feeling better in a few days because the book is actually coming out soon, isn't it? Yeah, it comes out August 9th from Amistad. And I'm going on tour. I mean, COVID, everything in the world that seems to be exploding, permitting. I might actually go on book tour this time. Oh, that's so exciting. It was Lakewood. Uh, when did that actually come out? Did that come out during COVID? It did. It came out March 24th. So the day before Indiana, where I was living at the time, went on lockdown. My, I, I'd also been supposed to go on tour. And one of the ways I could know COVID was becoming increasingly real to people was we just watched all, like, so much of the publicity for the book just disappear from in-person events to even just, I mean, we were all in that huge funk and nervous and scared. So even just some podcasts or different things, they just kind of disappeared because we were all feeling bad. So does the publicity for this book almost feel like your redo at a debut? I like that question because some parts of it, it does feel brand new because we honestly didn't get a chance to do this much stuff. But it's also kind of comforting because I'm with the same publicist. And so now he and I are really familiar with each other. So it's kind of that thing where there's a lot of fingers crossed jokes. There's a lot of, I, I don't know. I have really bad pandemic luck. I think between a March, 2020 release and then getting COVID right between my second, right before I released my second book. And I hadn't gotten COVID before either. So I guess it's a debut COVID and maybe a second debut book. I, I like that thought. I like that thought. But maybe COVID in a weird way for you personally is a good luck charm because the first book had, you know, was well received. And now this book is is looking like it's having some, some good early reviews and you get to go out and meet some folks on tour. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Although that's pretty dark. That's true. That is really dark. I, I, I should roll that one back. Yeah, yeah. You're saying that either uh, Megan has to have, there has to be a worldwide pandemic or she has to have an illness for her books to do well. That's true. That was dark. I take that back. That's, this was supposed to be fun and there was supposed to be banter and I just went right to the darkness. So here's a segue. Maybe it's all witchcraft. You've been cursed. You had the COVID curse and now you have it again. Oh, that doesn't sound very good either. All right. Yeah, there's no way to not go dark on this <laughs> All these are cracking me up now. Maybe I think Rob cursed us by calling this the Salem 2022 episode is is really what happened. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see if it's appropriate. Let's explore. Let's see. Let's decide at the end. Let's reflect on whether it fits. So so maybe we should just dive in. Where are we going to start, Brenda? We were thinking an overview of the world and its beliefs about witches would be, I think, helpful to the listeners. Uh, Your protagonist, Megan, is... Josephine, who goes by Joe Thomas, she's 28 and she's been grappling for many years with her mom's mysterious disappearance. She's facing some pressures um, to take action before she turns 30. 
Can you talk a little bit more about the types of pressure that she's under because of her mom's unexplained disappearance and because of the world that she lives in? Yeah. So in the world of the women can fly, women around the age of 14, they're given pamphlets from school. And I, it, it's based on like the pamphlets that you take home that are, surprise, you're menstruating or get your parents to talk to you about safe sex or all the different things that the school is trying to warn you about becoming an adult female woman. And in this world, you, you start off with pamphlets warning you about witchcraft and also not falsely accusing each other of witchcraft. And women are really conditioned in the world of the book to be hyper aware of how they present themselves. And especially for someone like Joe, whose mother, and this isn't a surprise, you learn this on page one, is that her mother is gone. She's disappeared. Her family's been waiting to declare her dead, but she disappears around Joe's 14th birthday. And anything that a woman does that's unusual or peculiar, but especially something like vanishing in a thin air and no one can find you, well, that makes you seem suspicious and that makes your daughter seem suspicious, too, because witches congregate together. Some of these things are even based on existing laws. Like in Oxford, Ohio, I did a MA in Miami at Miami of Ohio. And they talked about, like, one of the things that people would tell me about the town, and they thought this was kind of this charming detail, is that for a long time on the books, and it might have even still been the books because weird laws seem to never get off the books for whatever reason. And I don't really understand who maintains the books, but it was, if there were more than, I think, four women living together, it was considered a whorehouse in the town. And that's why there were no sorority houses in the town. There was a set limit of how many women could live together. And I think that was just one of the seeds of how often women are police, where if you know anything about Oxford, Ohio, it's a huge fraternity sorority town so many fraternities and these men could live together in 20 30 and just do debauch stuff but women no and i kept thinking about the different small ways that people kind of tell you as charming stories about being a woman in this country but are really just ways to also share the ways that women's rights have been inhibited. And that really tied in the way I developed the world of the book, because I thought a lot about how ingrained some of these things are into just American culture. I don't know much about anywhere else, but at least in America, it feels that way. And we sort of just treat them as cute or how we live. But the more you push at it, it's kind of a really easy way, although I feel kind of even saying that based on the way things have been going this summer. I was going to say it could be a really easy way to make someone think about how, yeah, women deserve equal rights. These things are wild. It's really fascinating because it's even in like the jokes we tell, these like things that seem charming or seem funny. You know, I am a gamer in the tabletop gaming community and you, you find just, you know, funny jokes of, oh, don't tell my wife all the games that I bought, which is supposed to be a charming, funny joke. But again, it just highlights, if you don't inspect it, this idea of, well, why don't you have a relationship with your partner where you can be honest? Or why don't you have a relationship where your partner supports your purchases? So it's it's very interesting, even 
the things that are more modern and aren't just charming stories from the past and how they can perpetuate. So it's really, I love how you, you've combined that charming story feel into this world of like, well, what if those charming stories aren't charming and what does that look like? So I think that's a really, a really interesting world building piece that you've played with. And I think it's a super American way to deal with oppression because you go to the South and they tell really charming stories about the plantation. And the charming stories, they're like lipstick. They make you look great and bright. Although, I mean, I think lipstick is great. So I don't know if I'm fully on board with the analogy I was starting to do. Maybe it's like when you go into like a house that a landlord is trying to make nice. So they, instead of having the usual landlord blinds, they put some nice curtains on the wall. They paint a, a color that's slightly better than landlord brown. And they're hoping, like, don't look at the cracks. Don't don't question the creaks in the floor, the old appliances. Look at the currents. Look at this better paint than the thing down the street. And I think that's how we treat a lot of just the impressions and indignities of being either a poor person or a person of color or a trans person, or a woman in this country, or a gay person, too. I thought it was very skillful the way you reminded the reader that this world that you're describing is not very different from our world. I mean, it doesn't really feel different because everyone has cell phones, and it is our world, but Mm -hmm. there was a point where Joe was talking about her worst cousins, the ones who are loudest on the internet, and she describes them as the people who believe, quote, if you voted for the wrong person, you are a witch. If you vaccinate your children, you are a witch. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why you were drawn specifically to this concept of witchcraft to explore all the things we've just been discussing, the role of women and also LGBTQ individuals. And really, I I think anyone who isn't a cis man in this world suffers from some of the same, the oppression that you're speaking of. Some of this is just on a very basic level. I know that people love like the high and mighty, I'll get there. But the first is I just really wanted to write magic. I wanted to write about a world where anything seemed possible, but still people lean into their worst impulses and keep things small. And I, I think that's kind of one of the modern highlights of the human condition. There's endless possibility for us as people. We could be good and kind. We could have a world where, yeah, not every problem is solved, but we could work together. We could be cooperative. We we could have so much. And it was really interesting to me. It's really hard to say this without spoiling too much of the book, but there is a possibility of real magic around the halfway point of the book is what I'll say. And hopefully that will entice you to buy the book and keep reading. And then you'll say, Megan, maybe there's even more if you actually read it. But I wanted to show the ways that people constrain themselves. And I thought magic, something that could be limitless, something that could change anything, was the right way to get in there too, beyond the fun of imagining what if people could fly? What if there's other interesting things? But I think it was some of that. And then there is this historical level of witchcraft and women where there's that really easy lineup, even though it it isn't just women. If you start doing research, you find out that many, many people died from magic. 
well, not some magic, but you know what I mean, where they were accused of doing magic, but they were really accused of not conforming. I read about how especially LGBTQ people, they were often accused of witchcraft in England, in Scotland, in different places in Europe. And it was really interesting to me too, and I think that's part of why this comes up. And I mean, the main character, Joe, she's bisexual, and many of her friends are either queer or bi, and that's a big part of the story too. But it is also just about how much how much humans value conformity. I have to say, I was thrilled that Joe was bisexual. Yay for bisexual representation! Woohoo! Um, yeah, I but, really wanted but, to do that. And and you were very obvious about it and very purposeful about it, which I absolutely appreciated. Hashtag by visibility. I appreciate that thoughtfulness around it. Thank you. I was thinking when I was reading the book, very much along the lines of what you were saying, Megan, where people's vision of what witchcraft is, it's so nefarious. It was all so negative. And I was like, why wouldn't their imagination allow them to think witchcraft could be used for good? I thought of, this is in no way meant to diminish the the literary quality of your book, but the old TV show Bewitched, where Samantha is very indignant <laughs> that witches, you know, the main character who is a modern witch, yeah. of course, she's living a very domestic life. She's a homemaker. I don't know why she would choose to do that when mm-hmm. she could do anything. But she's upset that witches are portrayed as, as crones with warts and, and nefarious. And she's like, why? You know, and, and she changes all the signs. I think they go to Salem, Massachusetts, actually. And she wiggles her nose and changes all the signs to make a beautiful blonde. You know, not that that should be the stereotype, yeah, too. I but I like I'm remembering this episode. But it's a little like that. It's like she's going, why, what, where did this come from? Why are witches negative? Why can't they be, you know, why, that's not true, basically, is what she was saying. Witches are, exist, but you're all wrong about it. So anyway, it brought that to mind and uh, gave me the warm fuzzies because I loved Bewitch as a kid. <laughs> you know, isn't that a question that we could just be asking all the time? Like, like this past year, it's been a real trip to be revising this book. And and I'm thinking even of like the don't say gay bills where we could be doing anything with our time and resources. We could be talking to about education reform. We could be talking about education funding because I mean, that, that's the root of having like a good society. It's having a well-educated populace, but instead most of our lawmakers are obsessed with the idea I mean, not most, but like the loudest of our lawmakers are obsessed with the idea that kids might find out that their teacher is gay. And it's just really upsetting to think about like the amount of time and resources and mental health and the way we're turning up people who really all they want to do is make sure kids can do three times three. They want kids to have that route so that they could be the people curing cancer. They could be the people writing books. And instead, they have to go in their classroom worried that they might lose their job. And that means that they can't afford their health care. It means they might never get a job again in the field that they've spent years studying. And I don't know. Maybe it's wild to compare education and magic, but sometimes I think it's the only magic that humans can actually access, that shared wealth of knowledge where we build creativity and innovation and connect with one another. That's really beautiful. 
I think your book makes very clear in a way that gets obscured when we get engaged in these debates, like the one you're describing about the don't say gay. Mm-hmm. It makes very clear that when you make up these stories about a group of people and you paint them as nefarious, you get the control. So it's the people who are telling these stories in your book who get to dominate because they say these other people are dangerous. And it's just so clear in your story. And I think in real life, we kind of lose that thread. But to me, it just it seems all about power and control and deliberately dividing people. Yeah. And I I think that's just the story of oppression. Like I, I grew up in a really small rural town in Michigan, and my family was one of the few families of color there and just the number of times where and this isn't even out of cruelty I mean I don't know maybe it was but I don't think so where sometimes when I first like moved to a new school I I would be the first black person that my classmates had ever talked to and some of them would just ask me questions about black people that were like wildly offensive but it, it was truly like a measure of just how easy that type of storytelling or that idea of nefarious. I, I love that you use the word nefarious, but it is that idea of painting someone as nefarious. It saturates into the culture and then it dehumanizes. And so there's only one type of person or a select few groups of people who are actually people and the rest are threats. And even that bandwidth and accumulation, it it destroys people's souls, both for having to think about other people that way and also for the people who are actively being hurt by that level of thinking. And I think that's really a big part of both my books in some ways. It's interesting. And Rob, I'm going to jump around now in our well-tailored document of our interview notes for our first time doing this together. I love that point that you just made about how it affects not just those who it's targeted to, but to other folks as well. Because one of the things that I found fascinating in your book is the treatment of male characters, not the treatment of male characters, but how you portrayed them. And there are two main male influences in Joe's life, her father, and then this love interest that she has. And I don't want to give anything away in the book. I want people to to find their own discoveries. But the way that you portray them is very nuanced in a lot of ways that I think can be hard to portray. The idea of what does a good guy look like? What does a good father look like? What are all those small decisions that get changed when you're hearing these nefarious stories of women or you're around other people who believe things, these nefarious stories about the women in your life. And I think that the way that you crafted the journeys of those two male characters really reflects that. I'm really glad to hear you say that. I mean, like I'm not interested in writing a book that is a feminist book that is also cruel to men. I don't know. I Like, I sometimes find that there are really great classics about being a woman, but part of feminism is equality for everybody. You want everyone to be levelly human. So I worked really hard at thinking deeply about what does it mean to be someone who both simultaneously benefits from this system because 
I mean, oppression doesn't work in this like straight line. It's a circle. You're simultaneously always, it doesn't matter. I guess there might be some magical person who is never oppressed. And there's also some miserable person who's never the oppressor. But for most of us, it's a circle. There are things that we do benefit from and privileges. And then there are things that we don't. It's not just this division where there's some people who are always going to be wrong. And I really wanted to capture at least some of the nuance of how it is to be alive at this moment, where you can both simultaneously be a man who is a feminist, but also you are benefiting from a system where you're the baseline human being and thinking really deeply about just the inequities in a relationship where one of you is always going to be the baseline human being whose society is crafted around and the other one of you always has less rights. And how does that impact the way you relate to one another? And also, how does it influence your biases a little bit? You do some really great explorations there because in the way that you present it, I was able to kind of extrapolate, like here are, you know, a week of experiences, for example, or, or you know, I'm just making up a week, but here are a set of experiences and you lay it out in such a way that I can actually envision what would a lifetime of this do to a relationship. So even though we're, we're catching us maybe a snapshot or a set period of time, the reader can actually go in and kind of see how this might you know, help or hurt or change people in the long run. I was going to say, I found it very poignant that the guy she was dating, Preston, was trying so hard to be a good guy and to treat her in a way that he envisioned was treating her as an equal. Yet it felt like there was absolutely nothing he could do because, as you were describing, the conditions around them almost taint the relationship. In a well-intentioned way, he decides, because she's not there, what color to paint a room. And then she sees it and she loves the color, but she's like, well, I didn't decide this. And he, and he was offering to even change it. But there was still, there was almost like nothing, even if they changed it, it somehow felt like because of the way society is and her world is abridged, she can't really have an equal relationship, even with the most well-intentioned man. They're both harmed by this, her in a bigger way, but he can't extricate himself from it no matter what. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of going all the way back to Brenda's joke about the guy saying, well, I can't tell my wife about how many games I, I buy. I wanted to think a lot, too, about romantic relationships. Like one of the advice I give to all my students, it, it doesn't matter what gender, but sometimes when they ask for life advice, I, I tell them, like, the person you're with and you choose to be with the rest of your life, they're the glass ceiling that you're always going to be contending with if you want a life as a writer, a life as an artist. They have to believe in you. They have to want you to write. And if they don't, it's just this level of struggle that unless you're very, very determined, you're going to, you might not get to have a book and you're going to have to make sure that you safeguard that part of your relationship where you, you find someone who believes and supports in you. And I, I think more people sometimes should think about that when they're choosing a romantic partner. Can you actually be yourself with them? Can you actually bring home your games? Can you write your book? Do they like you or do they like the societal idea of being in a relationship and being married? Because it's comfortable. It's what everybody else is doing. It's 
one of the ways that we figure out if we're an adult is, can I maintain a regular relationship with someone? Which I don't think is exactly fair. Actually, I think I was heading there. I don't think that's fair at all. I think it's really times have changed. But I still think for most people, we do use that as a measure of adulthood. I'm going to go talk to my husband when we when we get off. I'm going to say, have you been supporting me in my writing? No, he, he does. He does support me. Uh, he better. He does. He does. <laughs> I wanted to uh, go explore a little bit Joe's relationship with her mother, who, as you've said, mm-hmm. you know, vanishes when she's 14. Before that, there are lots of vignettes and scenes and memories she has of her mother that she's grappling with. And and she tells a story, Joe tells a story, or she, she relates a story about writing an essay when she was in school, and it was about seeing a deer in her attic, and it was a, a, an eight-point buck, so this big male deer. That's Michigan flavor, Rob, eight-point buck. Ah. It's one of the things I really equate with being from Michigan. People love to have, like, the points on the deer, and then what do they get? Or at least I have, like, a, I don't know, I have a a lot of family members who like deer hunting. So it might just be the flavor of Michigander I know. I mean, that's a big buck and an eight point. Yeah. I'm just throwing it out there for people who who are not aware. That's go look that up on the internet and look at a picture because talking it's about huge. it on a podcast is not gonna help. Well you're and you're in New Hampshire, Brenda, so you're you're more familiar with like what that looks like. In New York City here I don't come across a lot of any point bucks. I just stayed at an Airbnb that had a bunch of taxidermy. It was very fascinating. I, I chatted, so I just was looking. I don't think there were any eight-point bucks, um, but there were many pointed bucks on those walls. Well, the point I was going to make... No, let's see. Um, <laughs> I well, like that fact. Uh, so getting back to the, the essay that Joe was writing, mm-hmm. her teacher wants to speak to her after class. And she has one of those taking her aside conversations. And her message is that you're making it sound like magic is good. And she's warning her that there are other teachers who could report an essay like that. So she's she's sort of trying to be supportive. And then Joe also notes that over time, when her mother relates the story, because she brings her mother up to look at the buck, she starts changing the story and she turns it into a small scared doe. It seems like both her mother and the teacher are trying to protect her by telling her, don't say that. And then the mother's actually even trying to change reality and just make it something different. And Mm -hmm. it seems like it's in the interest of keeping her safe. But I thought it would be an interesting thing just to talk about a little bit how adults might do that with a child out of concern, presumably, for their safety, but changing their reality, you know, changing, changing what's true. When I was a kid... I was with my parents and my older sister, and we'd gone to this Christmas festival. And it was like this kind of terrible weather day in some ways, where it was snowing a lot, but it was it was like beautiful weather to be at a small town Christmas festival. I remember the candles. I remember going to the different stores. We saw a choir sing, and it's kind of just really this to the beginning of it, this beautiful kind of memory that you you wish that you would remember from your childhood. And then I also remember being in a crowd of people and we saw a man on his motorcycle and he had an accident 
that was very bad. And my dad, he tried to stop me from seeing it. But I saw everything because I was squirmy and curious. And one of the things I remember really deeply and why this has stuck with me beyond seeing someone die at a Christmas festival is that my dad told me, you didn't see that. And I know that in some ways it was more for him. But I remember him really firmly looking me in the eyes and saying, you didn't see that. Don't worry. You didn't see that. And I know that it's like a parenting reaction. You don't, you don't want to think that you planned out this idyllic day at a Christmas festival and then your kid has one of their first brushes with death. So I, was, I was like four or five. I call my dad after this and ask him. I might have even been three, but I'm pretty sure I was like four years old. And it was just that root of how much your parents want you to see things or don't see things. And even just the ways that people, like so many people are divided on just when is the right age to tell a kid about things. When are they allowed to actually perceive reality as it is? And some of the things that's also hard to know is, does this baseline and thinking that reality is this malleable thing, how much does it impact us as adults? How much are we willing to let reality be changed to be something more pleasant than it might be than what we actually are seeing right in front of our faces. That's an incredible story, actually. It's a little like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy, too. I mean, in a more innocent way, though. And maybe that is fine to tell those fantastical things, but for some reason it brought that to mind because that's sort of in our culture. You tell children these about these things that don't really exist. Oh, I hope people out there know that, 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 that they don't really exist. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I mean, I just think it's kind of the pleasure of being a child is thinking that the world is full of these possibilities. I don't want to be the type of person who's like, if I ever have kids, they're not going to believe in these things. Because it is fun to believe and play pretend. I mean, I'm a writer. Yeah, there are big, serious things I want to talk about. But the only way I got through writing this book is by also, I got to play. I got to pretend. I got to think deeply and build things. And I think that's kind of one of the most beautiful things of being a person, you know, that you get to play and pretend and that sticks with you your whole life. But unfortunately, you have to be more productive sometimes with how people act about it. We lived on a, a corner when I was growing up where there were no stop signs for a good mm-hmm. part of my childhood. And there were always car accidents there. Oh, my God. And I have a vivid memory of, of being four or five and going outside and my mother and my siblings bringing ice and a, a woman covered with blood and putting it over her head. And I just remember that very clearly. And mm-hmm. I have no association with how I processed that or what, what I did with that information. No one was trying to hide it from me. I was just wandering around looking looking at it. But it's there forever, right? It's just one of those things. Even Even now, you're probably still processing it. Completely. I see her vividly, this young woman. I think it brings up another point that maybe, Rob, you were alluding to in your original question, the idea of how adults shape or change our reality when we're young. What does that do to Joe that her mom disappears at a time in her life where maybe she could start either explaining how the world really works or preparing her daughter for the reality that's coming And just as we watch Joe 
try to figure it out on her own and what it all means, kind of that lack of that parent there to help or that trusted adult there to help her reshape her reality or readjust to the new reality. I really like how you phrase that because I think that's kind of the whole at the center of Joe's personality. She's still trying to figure out what she believes in the world, even though by 28, she sees most of her peers have conformed or are trying desperately to get their last fun in because they don't want to marry a man. They're queer. And I think Joe's ambivalence too. Yeah. Some of it comes from the fact that she is bi and some of it comes from the fact that the world is just in general, a place that she doesn't feel comfortable in. But I think some of it too is, She's really longing still for her mother to tell her what to believe. And her mother raised her, telling her that she didn't really believe in witches, that they didn't really exist, mm-hmm. which seems especially difficult for Joe when her mother disappears and everyone therefore assumes her mother was a witch and that she might be a witch. Right. And yet her mother was made a, made a point of saying witches aren't real. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm was because I'm trying really hard not to spoil much. <laughs> yes. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> I, I get that. Uh, but it's just sort of a fascinating thing. And Joe also works, her job is in a museum yeah. that is about what society thinks witches are. It's sort of, And it's sort of meant to have these lessons for the public to reinforce, you know, how dangerous and scary they are. And she, and yet she, she works there. And at the same time is grappling with this suspicion around her that maybe she's a witch. I mean, it's really, she's a really quite an incredible person that she grapples with all these sort of contradictions. She really throws herself into it. Isn't that living, though? Aren't we always all living with a series of contradictions? Some people repress very well. You know, she could have just pushed it all aside. and. That's true. Yeah, I'll give you that. I, I guess what I mean, and maybe I was being a little glib, because you're right, like, the, one of the things that hopefully makes her an interesting character is that she's willing to look directly at all these contradictions and can see them. And you're right, the average person, we know that there are contradictions within us, but we sometimes perceive those as flaws. We try to eradicate them. And if we can't eradicate them, we don't want to look at them. And it is hard to find a character or a person who is really comfortable with these contradictions or is just fine with ambiguity. But that does make for interesting characters and interesting people and nice and good people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We should be more interested in ambiguity. I'll buy that. Should we end on that note of ambiguity? Anything else, Brenda? Wait, I have a burning question. So in this world, we've already talked about how it it feels like uh, it could be our present day. They have cell phones, mm-hmm. they have the internet, they have you know, very similar to our own. In your mind, if you were to think of this as like an alternate history, is there like mm-hmm. one point in your world building process where you're like, nope, this is where our society could have changed and we, Rob and you and I, could be living in this world today? No. I like the question, but to be really brutally honest, in some ways it feels like we're living in the world of my book, even more so. I 
I mean, we lost our right to health care this summer. Trans people can't even really live in Texas. They're under a fascist regime in the state of Texas. Sometimes I wish that was in the book because at least maybe magic could at least be fucking real. But I don't know if I could say that there's a chance that we, I guess maybe there's a better world out there than either our world or the world in my book where instead of healthcare rights being built on row in a right to privacy in a right to not extraordinary measures toward receiving an abortion, we instead got an equal rights act where everyone isn't allowed to be discriminated on the basis of gender expression or sex or race, but we don't even have that in this country. So I don't know. I might be feeling extra pessimistic today, but it's hard to say here is better right now. Your book could not be more timely. It's true. Not that it wasn't relevant if it had been before the Dobbs decision, but it would have been just as relevant, but it seems even more relevant now. Yeah, I'm kind of furious, actually, about how relevant it is. It's kind of that push and pull where you write something timely and you want people to read your book, but I'm going to spend the next four months of my life asking for people to think of women as equally human because that's, at the heart, one of the big messages of the book. It's not even just about women. It's about all people deserve equal rights. It's why I wanted to include trans people. I don't think I included enough trans people or enough genderqueer people. I mean, it's one of those things where, in retrospect, I wish that I'd made the book even more diverse. But it's true. It's another one of those things where we could tell charming stories. We could say, ha-ha, isn't it funny that this thing happened that's directly tied into my oppression as a person? And that's not true anymore. But it's clearly still true. There's nothing wrong with saying abortion is health care especially when it comes to saving a woman's life, especially when it comes to letting someone have autonomy over their body. People deserve autonomy over their bodies. We deserve the right to treat ourselves in the ways that we need to be respected and treated. But I do wish sometimes that I had written just a fun book that was about flying through the air And maybe there were some magical crystals that, in a very Final Fantasy way, we could have all collected. I don't know. It probably would have been really fun to write. Well, you can write it when you don't need to write a book like this particular book, which I think is a book we we all need. Your book could very well end up on banned book lists yeah. because of its subject matter, you know, which is unbelievable that that's something that still goes on in many school districts and in libraries. In school districts and librarians are getting harassed. And I don't know. It probably will. And I have, honestly, I'm kind of surprised my first book hasn't ended up on any banned book list, but I think it's just too weird for people to sometimes get the meaning at the heart of that one either, or maybe just wasn't loud enough. But it is going to be that interesting thing where, I mean, it's both simultaneously a book about a bisexual woman, a book about a black bisexual woman, 
it's about women's rights and people's rights. And it does hopefully make it clear that I think trans women are women and that trans people deserve equal rights too. And it's really frustrating that these things that to me are just basic manners. You treat other people well. You treat them with respect. Could feel to some people like this nefarious scheme or something that's corrupting. It's kind of really depressing. It is, but I will tell readers that your book is not, in fact, depressing, although it deals with serious things. And there are aspects to it that are upsetting and disturbing, but I was happy you wrote this book and these books are out there because it's not only a good story about a particular character, but it's uplifting in in some ways because Joe is such a resilient figure. In retrospect, maybe you may have wanted you know, to write a fun book, but this is a book that you know is definitely something that we need now and is relevant now, and that you're going to be talking about this as you go through your book tour and promoting this book. It's such an important effort, even with the topics it's covering, because as you were mentioning just a little bit earlier that hope and possibility of what we could be, magic or not, is another piece that is going to be a message that people need to hear. Yeah, I hope people leave the book thinking, we can make beautiful things together, and we can help one another, and the world could be better. I don't mind spelling that. I don't think that the ending of the book is a true bummer. I'm hoping that it's kind of a little optimistic for the right readers because I I do want that shared feeling of yeah we're all depressed we're all having a hard time and what we need to do is we need to build our imaginations together now we have to work and think about how can this place be beautiful I don't know if I still believe it can be but I want to believe it can be and right now I think that's enough for me I think that's a beautiful note to end on I think we got to a better place. I mean, a happier, not that we had to end on a happy (laughs) note, but. Well, thank you so, so much. I can't imagine having a better book, a better guest for Brenda and I to do our first episode together than than having you on, Megan. So thank you so, so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I really appreciate how both you and Brenda, like your questions were so thoughtful. It made me feel like my book and I was, we were being seen. So thank you. We've been talking to Megan Giddings about The Women Could Fly, which is coming out this month, August of 2022 from Amistad Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Brendan Weser. And I'm Rob Wolf. We edit the show together. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is co-editor. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already, and please consider giving the show five stars. And thank you so much for listening.